Grab your pre-workout and turn up that volume. It is time for a new episode of the Powerlifters Den with your host, Cam Smith. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Powerlifters Den. I'm your host, Cam Smith, and today I want to bring on a coach, a powerlifting coach that has all-time world records of himself, as well as many athletes of his. Uh, Trevor, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Trevor Jaffe. Uh, I have been coaching for a long time. I've been coaching in some capacity all the way since 2000, November 2001. Uh, online didn't really exist back then, so that was back in the days when you were fortunate enough to go to someone's garage to learn and dream. <laughs> I mean, the online world did exist, but not to the extent, extent of online coaching and whatnot. You were in clubs and teams showed up as clubs. So I've been coaching a very long time, competing just as long, almost as long. I've been competing for 18 and a half years in strongman, weightlifting, powerlifting, so a very diverse background. And one random CrossFit competition almost on a dare on one week's notice. That was brutal. <laughs> I wasn't in that kind of shape. Um, I have coached some very high-level lifters, eight different individual athletes to uh, almost 30 all-time world records now. It's 29, including uh, most known for Stacey Burr, Bama Burr. At the time, was the all-time highest world, still the third ever highest bat score. Um, and that was four and a half years ago. So it was really cool. I've had a lot of experience. I've worked with you know very high-level athletes. I've worked with a total of 15 all-time world record holders. I can only accredit their records, eight of them to myself, one out to the coaching time. But I've helped a lot of people get back to the platform when they've come off of injuries or whatnot. It's probably mostly what I'm known for is a lot of the content I put up is, you know, uh, mobility-based, corrective exercise-based, uh, movement efficiency, finding your patterns. I'm definitely not a coach who's set in a certain way. You know, I'm very anti-dogma. I don't like when people say this is the best way because if you look at every study, it works for a majority of people. But, you know, if there's 21 people in the study and it says it works for 40% of the people, you know, that was only like, eight or nine people, it wasn't everybody. So I try to keep a very open and diverse background and toolbox so I can work with as many people as possible and you know do the best I can to be of value to the community as well, which is why I constantly educate and teach online because it brings me a lot of fulfillment to help people learn at a much more accelerated pace than I could because the information like we have it now wasn't so readily accessible. And when I was coming into powerlifting, it was still that transition back to raw and people really didn't know how to lift raw. So it's been kind of like my own personal mission to help raw lifters learn how to lift raw and not fall into the geared mechanics, which are still very, very important and still very good for geared, but they're not so great for raw. Yeah, I think uh, that's a that's a good uh, starting point for the episode is to kind of talk about, um, I guess, like the whole approach to um, individualization per athlete. Um, I think yes. one of the things that makes a great coach, well, that separates a great a good coach from a great coach is being able to individualize. Obviously, when you're hiring a coach, like that's the goal in mind, but I think a great coach is someone who can break down movements per person and kind of utilize different, like you said, different dogmas or different methods or different strategies to make them a better athlete. 100%. Your, your role as a coach is not to make an athlete fit a system. It's to find principles to fit the athlete's needs. And there is a challenge that a lot of co coaches face because they don't have enough of an education or diverse background to work with anyone who isn't the same as themselves. You know, you see that often where somebody is very much an outlier and they know how they got strong and they just assume that will work for everybody else. And it will work for some, but it won't work for all and it won't work for many. So you have to have that toolbox that allows you to reach in and say, okay, this isn't working. What can we pivot to and try? Um, you can see that often online with online coaching because people's, you know, attrition rate is very low at three or four months it's because they're dogmatic in their approach and it doesn't fit the athlete or they're failing to communicate to the athlete what they want them to do to get them to buy in. So 
it is a big thing. And that's what frustrates people in the field because they're, they're like, I'm paying for this. I'm not getting it. It's not that they're not getting it. It's that coach may not be capable of it. Yeah. And I think for, for someone like me, who's I'm, I'm, I'm still considered like an amateur powerlifter, but I'd like to call myself like an amateur coach as well, because mm-hmm. I mean, I have athletes that are around my age and it's something I've been doing for a couple of years, but something that I've really learned over the past couple of years is kind of utilizing and learning from other coaches to pull from because every coach might have their own specific ways to do things. But I think that um, being able to pull certain things, I'd be like, Oh, I think this would work for this athlete is a, a important thing. Absolutely. Yes. And I always tell people, you know, instead of buying into a system or buying into a coach, you know, buy some of their programs so you can see what they do and then be willing to send them questions like, Hey, I noticed you're doing this. What is the intention here? That's how you learn. Uh, because a lot of it is, you know, book knowledge, but then also experiential or real world knowledge or you go through and you've tested and applied because you can read a study, but some of the, some of the protocols these and studies aren't realistic in real life. They're in a controlled setting and athletes in a controlled setting. So you have to take it for as an outline or suggestion, not as concrete or in stone. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think uh, Chris Delafave said this once. It's like one of the biggest things is the time under the bar. Like you could have all the degrees and knowledge of books in the world, but at the end of the day, if you haven't spent time under the bar, you're not going to be able to put some of those things to practice. Correct. Yes. Uh, many years ago, I worked uh, in corporate gyms, 24-hour fitness, and I was a fitness manager. And at the time when I came on board, my fitness manager had a master's degree in exercise science and he had a CSCS and the guy couldn't teach a bodyweight squat to save his life. And it's like, he put all his time into learning what the book said, but had zero time to the bar and couldn't apply it. And his body was a reflection of that. His client's results were a reflection of that. Like he knew everything he had to do except how to actually do it. Yeah. So I guess kind of segueing a little bit into the, um, like not necessarily corrective exercise, but like more of the mobility aspect of it. Um, I know you post a lot about different mobility things, kind of where are some of your bases from that? Like what kind of interests you in kind of exploring that side of the sport? Uh, When I was initially competing in strongman and I was attempting to get ready for a strongman competition and a powerlifting competition that were one week apart, I was young and I was very arrogant and I made neither competition. Instead, I spent Father's Day weekend in the hospital getting MRIs on my back because you know, lessons learned painful are ones that you remember. But I was competing or attempting to compete in two different sports that are strength-based, but the movements are very dissimilar. You know, obviously it's carrying, loading, a lot of compression in strongman. And when you're getting ready for the two, you start max efforting your strongman events. And during the week, I was max efforting my power lift. So there was no recovery to speak of. But when I got hurt, one of the ways I came back is I couldn't deadlift heavy and I couldn't squat heavy is I started learning how to do the weight lifts, the snatch and the clean jerk. And this is uh, about 12 years ago now, and I learned how immobile I really was as a strongman competitor and as a powerlifter. So I didn't have I didn't have problems getting to depth with my squat or getting under implements. But then I quickly realized it was like moving in concrete or moving in quicksand when you realize how immobile you actually are trying to do the weightlifts because you know muscling them up doesn't count in weightlifts. Like you can't press out weights, and they have to be efficient and technical. So it was eye-opening to how immobile I was, which is part of the reasons why my back went out because my back was acting as a mover instead of a stabilizer because my my mobility in my shoulders and my hips was really lacking. 
And I was compounding on top of that. So a lot of times people will argue that load management is the only thing responsible for protecting against injury. And that's probably the primary driver of protecting yourself against injuries, load management. But if you can't have efficient technique or movement under a significant load, you are compromising and you are increasing the risk factor because your body's going to compensate for that lack of mobility by moving somewhere else that might be a stabilizer. And that's when a muscle can go or disc can bulge because your body has lost its structural stability. And so what mobility actually is, is your body's ability to move through space efficiently. And that's what we lose sight of because, you know, the old school dogma is you don't have to mobilize. You don't have to be mobile enough to do this and that. And to a degree, it's right. But if you want to move more efficiently or last longer or have less pain, your mobility, your ability to move through space matters dramatically. And it allows you to express more strength. You know, I'm not one of the biggest guys. I walk around 202 this morning. I compete anywhere from 181, 188, and 220. Um, but, you know, I've, I've put up very astronomical numbers for that lightweight, you know, four times body weight deadlifts in two different weight classes. And I'm just 11 pounds off of four, four, four uh, times body weight in, in three different weight classes. So it, it shows the efficacy of how well you move is how much strength you can express. And so I try to freely share that with people and say, hey, you know, you can take your parking brakes off and you will move better. You will feel better. You'll perform better. It's worth the time. Yeah. And something that um, I've been kind of dealing with recently is some like pulls and strains here and there that I can definitely attribute to like a lack of mobility because I'm like about over a year out from like being done with college football. And when we were doing our football workouts, my, my coach was very adamant on like mobility and stretching. And like, we did a lot of hang cleans and we would do like high pulls and kind of weightlifting movements. We kind of, we did snatches for a little bit, but once we realized that half the team couldn't figure out how to do it safely, (laughs) we uh, quickly, disbanded those but yeah that's a huge point with weightlifting is your mobility issues and like your lack of like i guess athleticism can easily like it's immediate how apparent it shows with weightlifting so yes some athletes are born some athletes are created and you know it's funny you mention that because we'll look at the sports science as americans and say oh static stretching mobility takes away your power but then you can watch every training hall video from russia or asia and they're doing 20 to 30 minutes of mobility before they touch the bar Every professional athlete is on the field a couple hours before stretching. You know, somehow it was the assumption they're doing it to prevent injuries. They're not. They're doing it to express their ability to move better. And, you know, the repeated bout effect, yes, if you take someone and you have them do a long-duration static stretch of a prime mover, they're going to show signs of fatigue before they lift. But if you have them do them frequently enough, they condition to it, and it no longer affects their performance. So it's just a matter of we aren't doing it long enough to get conditioned to it, so it has an impact. And that's part of the problems with studies is that's an acute effect, not a long-term effect because the Asians are dominating weightlifting. You know, the Russians have dominated strength sports for years. We still see Russians come over now and just do incredibly well in powerlifting, yet they live for mobility and we don't because the science says it's going to fatigue you. And it's like, well, we know long-term that if you do this every time, it's no longer fatiguing, you've conditioned to it. Yeah. And I, I think this kind of brings up a question I have too is um, with everything in life, like balance is key. So I guess, where where's like the or your marking point for where like this is enough mobility work that's not going to just like overshadow your entire workout uh i'm not a fan of long-term long duration warm-ups like a lot of foam rolling and extreme mobility i like to include some especially shoulder and hip mobility in the warm-ups to make sure it's adequate so i always look at it as is your ability to move the bar good or bad you know, if you're pushing the bar forward from your shoulder mobility, then we need to work on your shoulder mobility. 
if you're having trouble hitting deck, then we might need to work on your bracing or your ankle or your hip mobility and so forth. So it's it's more of a case-by-case -case basis of how much is needed. I don't want anyone to be a circus delay performer or an acrobat or be able to do splits. That's not my goal because, you know, there's a, a certain point of, it's, I don't want to say diminished returns because it's not going to diminish returns, but do you need to be able to do splits to do sumo deadlifts? No. And you have a little bit better external rotation or hamstring length to get into a better position? Yes. So adequate is enough. Um, and unless somebody wanted to or needed to as a goal, we wouldn't go beyond that. So as a coach, is that something that you also analyze and break down outside the lifts? You like watch their warm-up videos sometimes too, or is that? I love when athletes send me their warm-up videos so I can see how they're moving. One, because accountability, then I know they're actually doing it. So I'm not wasting my time by writing it, but two, to make sure they're doing it well and to see that progression. Because oftentimes, you know, I'll put somebody on the floor and I'll, I'll see they have tight shoulders and give them daily homework of prone swimmers. And if they're not improving their ability under the bar, generally I can say to them, hey, are you, are you actually doing this every day? The, nine times out of 10, the answer is no. And that, that one time, 10 out of 10, that I know then that's great data because it's the wrong strategy for them. So it wasn't helping them. If they're doing it every day and it's not helping them, I have to pick a different movement or identify a different group that might be holding them back. So it gives both data, but also accountability. So yeah. I love when I send me the warm-up videos because I know they're doing it. Yeah, so I guess maybe go a little bit more into your process about kind of the exercise selection for your warm-ups. We sure when um when I'm taking on a new athlete, first thing I usually do because most people reach out to me like Instagram and I have them email me is I'll look at their videos of their lifts, start identifying what muscle groups might be tight, what muscle groups might need to come up, you know, looking how they're squatting, benching, or deadlifting. It's also in my questionnaire things that they have struggled with in the past or had success with, uh, what they feel like their weaknesses are. So I get to know how self-aware they are because sometimes you'll have an athlete who will give you their list of weaknesses that somebody told them, but then you look at the video like, no. <laughs> Like, oh, I have a weak posterior chain. I'm looking at the way this squat. I'm like, you can use your posterior chain the way you squat. <laughs> You're a narrow stand time bar squatter using your quads. Yeah. But, um, you know, so it's not everyone is self-aware or extremely educated in the process. So the first thing I do is I have the questionnaire and I want to know what they know, what their availability is like. Um, second thing is, is your first six weeks working with someone, five or six weeks, you're, you're just learning them. So you're, you're learning what their volume tolerance is. You're learning what their load tolerance is. You're learning what their movement patterns are. You're learning how they communicate and you're learning how they take the cue. Um, you know, I've had some people who don't take criticism very, very well, and that's not the right athlete for me because I'm, I'm, I don't want to say I'm hypercritical, but I like to find things that we can improve upon. Yeah. I'll leave with a compliment, like, Hey, you're moving this bar. Great. But I am noticing it's traveling towards your toes. So let's work on this. Like I'm, I'm that guy, but it's, it's never just going to be a thumbs up. <laughs> I know some coaches like thumbs up. It's like, Hey, did you even watch? Um, so it's one of those, it's a, it's a little bit of a balance of, you don't need to send me every video. If you have a glaring flaw, you have it on every set. I don't need your best set. I want to know where you struggle with, because that's what I'm going to cue and point out and remind you the things you can do better. So uh, I used to struggle with that. Like athletes will like freak out about sending me their worst video or sending me their best video and they want to look good. I'm like, I don't, I don't want you to look good for you. Don't impress me. Show me the things that we want to work on because that's how you're going to impress yourself and get better. So I guess that's kind of, getting them to show you what they need to work on. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's something with my athletes too. That's like, um, I mean, sometimes I'll, I'll just be like, nice job because like th at that point I didn't notice anything or it's like yes. kind of in a, whether well, it's a secondary movement or just something new that I just want to make sure they were doing correctly in general. Yeah. But like, I, I do the same thing too. I'm like, yeah, that moved great, but you're doing this. So fix this next time. And I, mm -hmm. I, I literally did that like this morning too. And I was, that's so funny that you mentioned that. But I guess yeah. I, I, you do have some athletes who want you to like tear them apart every lift. You're like, it wasn't bad. <laughs> I don't want to make you feel bad. It was a good lift. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah i mean i that is true and i know so i'm kind of like that too but it does show that that person does have the willingness to learn and they're very coachable so i think that's a that's another balance point like it's don't be too critical of yourself but it, it does show that you like want this yes and i'm i uh i'm a big fan of singularity of focus what i mean by that is instead of pointing out eight things you could have done better find the one thing that was the biggest problem that you can do better. And then once that improves, then you find the next thing and the next thing. It's a time process. If you're trying to change eight things at once, nothing's going to happen. It's too much. Yeah. And the, the first thing I could think of when you say that too, is like on meet day, like if you're at a meet, you're at that point, you're already done with prep. You should not yeah. be thinking about anything else at that point, unless yeah. there's like a major thing where it's a quick fix and you don't have to think about it. That's the only time I think you should make an adjustment. I used to joke that you're a scientist all of prep and you're a meathead on meat day. <laughs> no thought, just execute. Yeah. It's, it's what you're prepared for. 100%. I guess kind of to like wrap up the whole like mobility thing, I get, what's some of the most like underrated things or things that you don't think are highlighted enough in the sport? Ah, so from a from a joint by joint approach, I really like doing things from the ground up. So making sure that your foot health is there. I have toe spacers. I like to roll the bottom of my feet, um, especially because, you know, that's what we're creating force from is from the floor. And a lot of people struggle with rooting, which means a lack of stability, which means a lack of force output. So going from the feet, taking care of your feet, taking care of your ankles with like walling tibialis raise, making sure your ankle mobility is good, stretching your calves daily. Um, certain muscles get tight for a lot of us because we sit all day, such as hamstrings, hip flexors, and lats because we crouch down. So if I was going to choose three static stretches to do all day, it would literally just be calves, couch stretch for the hip flexors, and a lat stretch to keep them mobile. Um, I think a lot of mobility restrictions also have to do with inactivity. So if we can get people to move more, walk more, and do more, they'd have less of a mobility restriction. Just because we tend to sit or lay down all day, everything restricts because we don't use it. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of talk right now about stretch-mediated hypertrophy, but stretch-mediated movements also create a lot of mobility because you're carrying it through and stabilizing through ranges of motion with load. That helps you keep that range of motion mobility. So some underrated things, believe it or not, could be simple as like incline curls. People who struggle from biceps tendonitis, you know, deep incline curls with light weights are going to create that traction, that stretch to open your shoulders up from the from the low bar compression. Full range of motion pull-ups, bringing yourself all the way to the bottom. Even such things as overhead presses where you're getting that upward rotation and downward rotation of the scapula through its fullest range. If you fully reach, you're not going to lose that mobility. You know, if, if you can't press overhead, that's a dead giveaway that your shoulder mobility is garbage yeah so simply press overhead i'm not telling you you have to load up 225 you can take a pvc pipe which weighs nothing and if you did 20 strict full range military presses every day you're probably not going to have shoulder mobility restrictions so i think the biggest takeaway isn't necessarily a specific movement it's the movement you lack in your life is probably something you should include every day yeah i, I think when you said like the whole traction through movement the first thing that comes to mind for me is the reverse hyper i guess um going into like that kind of idea, what are some other movements where you can build that like strength through the range of motion as like a reverse, uh, hyper? reverse hypers get a bad rap, obviously, because they come from West side. Everyone wants to hate on what comes from the multiply world, but you see a lot of strength conditioning coaches and, and teams use it for a variety of sports because it is dynamic loaded range of motion. And it does build, it helps build resiliency and capacity to the tissues that surround the spine. Uh, a lot of debate whether or not I can actually rehab the spine, and I won't get into that, but it does build tissue capacity because those are those are endurance muscles. So, you know, your spinal erectors need to be strong, but need to be enduring. So doing high rep work like that is, is extremely beneficial. Uh, I mentioned the incline curls, something that people used to uh, crap on, um, like behind the neck pull downs and behind the neck presses, those can also be exceptionally beneficial. But again, 
people take them to an extreme. If you don't have the range of motion, don't force it under load. And it doesn't need to be loaded so heavy that it's hard to perform the movement. You can do them very light and just take them through that fullest range of motion. And that's going to give you adequate mobility and structural integrity within the shoulder joint or within the knee joint. You know, um, I remember when I first started, they used to have literally books and articles saying, do not have a forward knee travel, how it was bad for your knees. And now that we see the more modern research, we know that, that we need that forward knee travel that is both good for the ankles and good for the knees. It's, it's the mechanics of which you load and move through and the load, you know, the volume and load that you, um, regulate more so than the movement because they used to think that that was shearing the kneecap and you know we know now that even walking shear to some degree but you build resilience you build tissue capacity so what we you know it's always evolving um i like things that take you through a full range of motion they don't have to be your primary list but they should be included so a warm-up could be as simple as a full range of motion heel raise goblet squat to get your ankles knees and hips warm it can be for your upper body, it could be as simple as two sets of 15 behind the neck pull downs before your bench press to open up your extra rotation to get into better position and set your shoulders and so forth. Plus, if you're actually moving in that plane, you're, you're getting a lot better scapular congruency. So I think that's what's lost on a lot of people is moving through ranges of motion with load, such as the reverse hybrid, such as the incline curl, behind the neck pull down, behind the neck press safely. The range of motion you can comfortably have the handle and over time improve that range. I think that's, that's something that's lost on today because we've oversimplified to squat, bench, and deadlift and variations that are so close to it in a DUP system. Uh, DUP being daily undulated periodization, they're hyper-specialized. So it's uh, very specific. You always low bar squat or pause squat or tempo squat. You always bench close grip bench or squat or press, and you always deadlift or pause deadlift. That's pretty much it. There's not a lot of nuance outside of that. You might throw in some pull downs, lateral raises, and curls. <laughs> they're very simplified systems. The caveat to that is you're missing out on a lot of structural integrity within your muscle groups. You're just getting good at squat, bench, and deadlift, but without that structural integrity, eventually things are going to break down. The polar opposite of that is the way a lot of people run concurrent and conjugate systems where they throw an amalgamation of exercises and then try and be great at everything, and sometimes they lose sight of being great at the one thing they need to. Balance was the word you throw at the beginning, and that's, that's where I think a lot of coaches are starting to find that balance of implementing strategies from systems rather than systems. Yeah, I totally agree, and I think that's that's been a huge part of my coaching for my athletes. And it's, I see it in my programming as well from my coach. Um, mm -hmm. I guess kind of transitioning more into what, what you got upcoming. I know you're competing down at, uh, down in Florida in May. And it's going to be, is, this is your first uh, geared meet, correct? Yeah, yeah. Switching, uh, jumping into single ply. Uh, came about as like a little bit of a joke. I was out in Vegas. One of the athletes I work with, Anthony Hobaka, owns uh, Back Alley Barbell there. And we were there and I put his briefs on. And he's like, have you ever looked at the records? And I was like, no. And um, so we started looking at the records. And then uh, I was down in Tampa for a meet as well. It was multiply IPA meet. There's some raw and some multiply and friends there and, and wrapping a, a friend's knees for the meet who's competing. And uh, next thing you know, it became a thing. The owner of the gym, Perfect Storm Hardcore Gym, where Dan Bell trains and stuff. And um, I think Fernando Arias is there now as well. Um, she's got a meet that she does she does a raw day and a geared day and their geared day is going to be invitational only and their concept was inviting raw lifters over to try geared and i was like well this is a perfect opportunity it's two hours north of me uh i've always been curious but i've never jumped in there because you you focus on what you compete on i focus on raw and i've learned raw so now i get to learn different things about gear multiply uh it's a different game same lifts different game and it's gonna be a lot of fun uh so i enjoy that i get the opportunity to do that you know, I've competed for a very long time, so it's it's natural that I gravitate into other aspects of the sport, and just all it does is is increase your awareness and help you learn more, which helps more people. You know, part of what's made me 
successful as a coach was having the background in strongman, having the background in weightlifting, having the background in powerlifting because, and, and training gen pop for a very long time and, and youth sports and conditioning, you really learn how to work with a diverse group of people, not just learn how to work with one person. So that's, that's been the most beneficial. And so I look, I look at that as an opportunity to, again, learn more and help more people. Yeah. I mean, for me, like being around like a bunch of equipped lifting, it's like something that like, I probably won't do, I, I might do a single ply meet this year, depending what I hit for a uh, meet in May for a total, but mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm around it all the time. And it's, it's really cool to watch and learn. And like, it's kind of just something that like, eventually I'm going to have to do. It's just going to be, it's just like part of my destiny, but it, yes. is, it is really cool to see just how different of, it's like, like you said, it's like a different sport, but it, like at the end of the day, it's squat bench deadlift, but it's literally a whole different ball game. And they work together so much more. Very um, I've been at competitions. Yeah, I've been at competitions in Raw where people have like animosity, and I'm like, yeah. why? It's yeah. just fun. And I've, you know, I've seen some top lifters. Like when I was just at uh, the last meet I was at here in Florida, when uh, King of the Platform that Jordan was competing, you know, Shane Holler was there, Chad Penson was there, uh, Stu from Kodak Barbell, and they're all, you know, laughing and joking every time. But I've been to other meets where there's like so much animosity in the room, and someone's got beef online with this person and that person, and they hate each other. It's like, you don't see that so much in multiply because they help each other out. You know, it's at the WPO here at the, at the uh, Olympia, uh, the entire room, every athlete works with each other, helps each other, spots, loads each other's cues each other. They don't care if they're competing against each other because they're all in it together. And they're already segued away from the raw and chastised enough that they, they know they belong together as their community. So it, it is really cool. They don't trash other people as much as the raw community trashes them, but they are a, a very cool group to learn from because the atmosphere is different than somebody who's going to a crunch or planet fitness and power thing on their own. It requires a team. And so everybody has that team atmosphere wherever they go. Yeah. And I think that's what I love about the equipped lifting too. It's just the community aspect of it. Um, yes. I guess for, for you, what made you choose single ply rather than multiply? <laughs> uh, oh, good question. Uh, it seemed like an easier transition to learn the, the simple sim single ply first, more so than multiply. Um, I also, I, I would admit, I would be a little bit more nervous to put those super physiological loads on my old ass body that's already had significant injuries. It's a little intimidating because multiply to me is a sport of pain tolerance. Uh, I have many friends. I consult with like Taylor Rudent on her raw lifts and whatnot. She's trained by Laura Phelps, Cleavy Power. She's one of the top 165 or 181 in the world. And uh, the pain tolerance is astronomical. When I was competing in Strongman, I had picked up an 800-pound yoke. And I remember how spine-crushing that felt. They didn't have the super yokes that were, were more comfortable with a wider bar back then. But I remember what 800 pounds felt like on my spine. And I just remember, like, it felt like my bones were going to break. And when you're in multiply, you pretty much do that on a weekly basis. <laughs> and I'm like, damn, that's all you, man. I know I'm covered head to toe in tattoos, but I don't really, I don't really like pain that much. Yeah, I, I think so. One of my friends at the gym is, just started doing multiply because he has like really bad hips from just years of football and all that. So like it was kind of like he went to multiply just to be able to still continue to squat and compete and things like that. Yeah. And just one of the, the glaring things that I've noticed is just like you said, not only the pain tolerance, but just the ability to deal with the amount of pressure that goes through your body. And like, I mean, half the time, like you, especially with bench too, you see people passing out rather than getting it to their chest just because of the sheer yes. pressure. Mm -hmm. Yep. It is incredible to watch up close. Uh, you know, I was at the WPO and you see like Hoff with like 1200 pounds on his back and you just see the pressure building up. You're just, you're floored. You're wowed. I'm just, I'm always wowed by what they can move and tolerate and hold.
So for for the meat, uh, what do you what do you use it for your gear? I have a overkill. I have a single ply suit that was made from Rudy from Overkill Strength Equipment. That was the first briefs I put on. I have Anthony's um, briefs that actually fit pretty damn well. Uh, so that's pretty cool. So I started in the briefs and I am now back down in weight. So I'm going to try and put the suit on tomorrow and see how that goes. I went to put it on the first time last week and I gained like eight pounds since I was measured for it. And it was like, this wasn't going on. And if it gets stuck, I'm by myself. So I was uh, cautious there. So I'm going to put the suit on tomorrow and see how it feels for deadlifts. I'm looking forward to it. It's different. You know, when you're raw, you have nothing restricting you except for maybe a belt or knee wraps. But when you have your whole body restricted like that and a pressure buildup, it's definitely different. So I'm looking forward to the challenge. It is something new. Yeah, it should be fun. I, I really hope I get to go down because that, that lineup for that equip day is absolutely bonkers. <laughs> it is. It's the better lineup than the WPO. It's incredible what Tommy has pulled together. Yeah. Um, I guess more kind of back into some of your competitions. Um, you said you first competed, what, 18 years ago? 18 and a half years ago, yeah, my first competition was in Strongman. So uh, when was your first powerlifting meet? 12 years ago. Competed in Strongman first for six years. Ironically, I wanted to compete in powerlifting first. I was a young kid. I was 18 years old. I was gym strong. And everybody in the gym was like, you should powerlift. You should powerlift. You're really strong. And so uh, I wanted to learn more about it. And I found, you know, back then all I had was powerlifting USA. The internet didn't have, like, powerlifting forums just yet information wasn't readily available you had to go find powerlifting usa which is like months behind and i was squatting like 585 to 600 to gym high as shit <laughs> you don't know standards till you get into a meet yeah and uh so i went and got powerlifting usa and i weighed like 205 and I, the first thing i opened was uh, open a page and there's tony conyers who weighs 148 and he's squatting 610 and i remember being too intimidated now mind you he was the number one 140 at the world i didn't realize that and i also didn't know he was in gear it didn't say anything about squat suits of any kind. I didn't know who was in gear. Uh, you know, they just said squats, bench, and deadlift. There only was gear back then. Yeah. Raw didn't exist anymore. So I was, like, way too intimidated. And I was way too introverted and shy to put a singlet on. So strongman became more appealing because I can wear whatever I want. And, you know, I was better at moving odd objects I really than, like, bench presses. I was a good overhead presser. So um, strongman was just an easier transition for me because I was way too intimidated for the side of power because I didn't feel like I was strong enough yet, which of course all of us start that way. We don't feel like we're strong enough and I feel like I had to impress everybody. Granted, I compared myself to the best in the world five weight classes below. <laughs> but uh, it, it's funny to think about. And I've, uh, I actually told Tony this because he, he's here in Florida. So he was at a meet and his daughter was at a meet. She was competing for her first time. And I mentioned how her father was responsible for me not competing in power for like 10 years because it was too intimidating to see this human who's like half my size lifting more than me um it's a funny story now but you know I, I waited a lot longer than i should have because i psyched myself out so that's another aspect i've become very very positive on is the mental aspect the psychology of it talking yourself up instead of talking yourself down and stepping out of your comfort zones because who knows how much more i could have grown to or learned had i started then instead of being scared of it yeah and i think um something that's pretty common these days like with the social media aspect of it and like people seeing all these crazy lifts that maybe people wouldn't have been exposed to back then. Like I know people who like they train, they lift heavy, but they're like, Oh, I'm not strong enough. Like, or they'll ask me like, how strong do you have to be to compete? And I'm like, there's no strength. There's no look to powerlifting. It's a community sport. Just go to the meet, go nine for nine, have a fun time. Yes. Everyone's first meet should be that experience. It doesn't matter what weight class you're in. It doesn't matter anything. You're there to learn, have a good time, make new friends and grow from it. But the the era and the time was different. You know, that was very much the thriving time. 
of West Side and Metal Militia, and it was, you know, a very overbearing, like, biker gang style. <laughs> and, you know, here, here, I'm this guy who shows up with, like, pink socks because I don't give a shit. <laughs> I did not fit in my first 10 years in the sport, but the sport somehow transitioned to me as opposed to them. Yeah. So over the, over the years, do you have any, like, meets in particular that maybe stood out to you as some of your favorites? I had a meet, and it's an odd one for a favorite, but it was one I knew that I let go of all hesitation. And I was preparing for this meet, and it was cool because it was going to be the Battle of the 198s, and it was me going against three guys that I coached who were also 198s, and we're all great friends. And we did a lot of things to hype this up and build it up, and I had a bit of a falling out with the state chair and the meet director, and so I got very political calls. Uh, I was coaching Stacy still at the time, and I was coaching Dallas Norris, who's an all-time world record holder in the squad as well. And... Uh, I got my opening squat, and then my next squat was red-lighted by the side judges, and then my next squat was red-lighted by the side judges, and I have them on video still to this day, and I remember I sent them to Stacy, and I remember I sent them to Dallas during the meet, and the first thing both of them said is, who did you piss off? Because I took my third squat, asked the ankles, and still got it for depth on red light, and you can actually see in the video, I'm asked the ankles, and the judge on the other platform is looking over at the lights, he's waiting for it, you can actually see it, because it was, it was very political. And so it became obvious on what kind of day I was gonna have, so I literally just said, Fuck it. And like, I, I got, I got a down command halfway up my opening deadlift, like halfway up, I got down command. I was like, what the fuck? Like, it was so blaringly obvious. That's why I don't compete in that Federation of Florida anymore. And um, I just said, fuck it, load 800. It was my first crack at 800. I got it like halfway up my first crack at 800 deadlift. And uh, at that point I realized if you have a bad day, so what? It took all the pressure away from competing. I realized that I'm going to have a bad day no matter how hard I try or what I do. They're determined to let me have a bad day and make an example of me, and that's fine. Uh, and they did. Good for them. But at the same time, my life has only gotten better since then. You know, it's gotten bigger and better. And it took away any and all pressure or fear from competing about how I looked or what I did. So it's an odd moment of letting go because I had no control and just enjoying the moment and being with my friends. I had a great time even knowing. And I just learned my lesson. I was like, okay, that's what it's going to be. I'll move on. So that was a big highlight for me because I, when you, when you let go of that pressure, you compete so much better. Like yeah. when you give zero fucks, you just send it. Like I've never gone nine for nine for that reason. Cause I stopped giving a fuck. And uh, my third deadlift is always like, it's going to be an attempt that's probably out of reach. Sometimes I make it. Sometimes I don't. The, um, my girlfriend at the time when I pulled the, the eight ten, she's like, where do you want to take your third? And this is where we're driving to the airport to fly to meet. I was like, Put it somewhere you think is out of reach. And she put a 10 on there. <laughs> it was determined before I got to the meet because I'm like, I don't care. Like, what do I have to lose? I'm there to try. And I think that makes for such a better lifter when people stop putting so much pressure on themselves to go nine for nine every meet or perform. If you're putting pressure on yourself that you only have a good meet when you go nine for nine, you're going to be so disappointed in this sport. You have to miss sometimes to learn how to make it. Yeah. Because you don't know what you need to fix. You don't know what you improve upon until you've missed. If it's always positive, you're either holding back, not challenging yourself, or you haven't learned what you need to work on. So those moments are great. Other moments were um, the first, uh, my first major meet was Rum 7. That was the pinnacle of raw powerlifting at the time. Animal came down, they made a documentary out of it, and it was every federation didn't matter. It was the first meet that had like the highest qualifying standards when I qualified. And it was the first meet my son ever came to and watched. And... Uh, <laughs> I unracked my third squat. Next thing you know, he jumps down right in front of the squat rack, holding the camera, and he's like, hi, dad. 
lost all our tension, lost our control, went down, came up, don't know how I made this lift. I shook so bad, so hard. It was the worst lift of my entire life. And my back rounded entirely. <laughs> and I made the lift. And I just remember literally having to be able to, the moment to think in the lift, I'm not missing this in front of my son. Yeah. And uh, I swear to God, I died literally under the bar, but I refused to miss. It's um, it's still horrendously hard for me to watch that lift, how bad of an execution it was. But the adrenaline took me through it. And so it's, it's a reminder to me that, you know, just because you lost position doesn't mean you lost the lift. You lost the lift when you quit on it. And so I'm stubborn. I'm very, very stubborn. And I'll keep pushing through. And that's, that's been my training mindset ever since. Like, I may have had a shitty day, but I can make tomorrow better if I try. For sure. And I, I think that's... that's the, as far as my competing. Yeah. I think that kind of brings up a, a point, too, that I, I kind of... Like, if you're going for, like, a, a PR, it's if it's a huge PR, or you're at a meet, like... Dude, who cares if your form breaks down? Like, just just hit the fucking lift. Like, cool. You can be so, you can take two weeks off if you need to. Like, just hit the lift. You're not getting judged on how pretty it looks. Yes, no. You don't get extra points for pretty and so by making it look easy. That just means it wasn't enough on the bar. <laughs> yeah, and I think that kind of goes into two with what you were saying about going nine for nine. Like, in my opinion, if you go nine for nine, you either, unless you had the most perfect calculations to get each lift RP 10 on the dot, which is basically impossible. Yeah. If, if you go nine for nine, to me, you kind of sandbagged your meat a little bit. You left something in the yeah. tank. Like, you got to swing yeah. for something. Yeah, it's a rare day. I mean, I just had a lifter go nine for nine and two back-to-back -back meets and get his first 500 dots. That was spectacular. Um, they were about six months apart. And the first one was like a 97-pound plot 4PR, and this was like a 38-pound plot 4PR. And I kind of jokingly said, I go, all right, prepare for the next one. It's not going to go pretty. <laughs> Lightning doesn't strike three times in a row. So. <laughs> and I know that going in just because the odds are not in his favor. Yeah. So with some of your athletes, like, do you usually travel to, with the meets if you can, if they're local enough or even if they're far? Uh, sometimes, you know, if I have a lot of athletes in the meet, I'll definitely travel to there. Like Ghost Clash, I have like six athletes competing, so I'll be there. Uh, I had several in American Pro, so I was there. You know, local ones I'm refing at. Um, if an athlete wants a meeting and they're the only one there, I just I, they have to take care of the comp, you know, compensate my travel out there. It's expensive to go out there for one person. So as long as they're willing to take care of it or share, contribute towards it, I don't mind it. Uh, so with, I guess, kind of more into your training too, Well, now that you're going into the single ply meet, um, maybe how is your training adjusted or maybe kind of just talk about what your training tends to look like? My training is interesting right now because um, uh, revisiting high frequency again, I'm basically squatting or deadlifting every day. Uh, very low scale, low intensity. I'm still doing some, some hip rehab. I have some hamstring tendinosis from the TFL tear I had last year from medication I was on. So right now it's mostly just technical precision, grooving it. And so one day a week I squat in my raw stance and now one day a week or twice a week I'm squatting in my, my wider stance for the gear to try and build that up. Um, deadlifting is basically I have a technique day and then I have an actual lifting day. So I've kept everything pretty moderate. You know, I don't think I've exceeded an RPE seven in several months just because I'm working on the technicalities of learning how to move from my posterior chain versus my raw chain. So I'm just taking time to build technique, let things heal. Um, it's not the most ideal, but it's what my structure requires because I pretty much have to travel for an event, a seminar, a meet or something where I have people traveling in for things every other week. So <laughs> that coupled with all my workload, I'm just kind of catching as can right now. Like I plan it out ahead of time. Uh, it's five days a week. This week I'll be lucky if I get four, but I'll get four, I'll find a way. The week prior, I had to work out 10 straight days to get it, <laughs> to get it in because I was traveling and gone for four. And then I had 
traveling again. So when I do that, I basically did like a reactive deload where I did four days, one day deload, and then four more days, one day deload. Uh, that worked out pretty well for me. So I just have to manipulate uh, some recovery variables if I can. Sleep's been good. Food's been great. You know, my weight's down. It's, it's on point. It's just a matter of taking the time to learn new positions without rushing and loading them so I don't hurt myself prior to the meet. Because that's the mistake a lot of people make. When you're doing something new, you don't have to load it to 100%. You can load it to 60, 70, 80. Take some tempos. So I am doing like, in my wider stance, I've been doing uh, tempo squats in the wider stance to learn a position. Because right now it feels foreign. The first time I brought my legs wider, it felt foreign. Like I couldn't feel where I was in the hole. I thought I was high as shit. And I looked at the video, I'm like two inches below. I'm like, wow, first of all, that's great hip mobility. Yeah. But second, <laughs> second of all, like I have no spatial awareness there because I haven't spent time there. So that's what I'm working on right now. Spatial awareness in the different movement patterns. So what are some of your, do you have any goals in mind for like numbers wise for the meet? Or are you just going to have fun kind of? A little bit of both. I'm going to have fun, have the experience. I'm going to get to meet new people that I only know through the internet that have competed. That's one of my favorite parts. Um, I would like to put 800 pounds on a deadlift in the 181 category. If I feel like I can make the weight, I will. Um, Tommy can be free range, do 81 or 98 if they want. Shit, she said 220 if I want to, but <laughs> I don't want to do 220. But um, I wouldn't mind taking another shot at 81. Uh, one of my goals that I haven't achieved yet is an 800 pound deadlift at 81. I have it at 98. I have it at 220. I did 771 at the showdown meet very easily. Uh, actually, I actually had to pull it twice because I felt I pulled it so fast. I, I fell over at the top on the second one. So then I had to slow it down and re-pull it for the third one. But I left a little bit on the board there. So I've always had the goal of trying to get 800 pounds at all three weight classes. Um, I did it at 98 first, did it at 220 second. And then, so I'd like to come back down to 81 if I can make it and put it there. So that would be my probably top goal would be to get the 81 again and put an 800 pound deadlift on the board at 81. I would make me pretty happy. And that would be the all time world record for single ply at 81 as well. The record that's there now currently has been there 36 years. So it's pretty significant. Oh shit. <laughs> pretty, so basically as long as piloting's been around. <laughs> it's Ed Cohen. Ed Cohen owns the single ply 181 and 198 world record. So if, if 81, I can make it, it goes well, then we might stay there and see if I can push towards that one as well. It gives me something to shoot for, something fun. Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty cool too. I feel like the 198 weight class is such a competitive, like 198 to 242, I feel like is some of the craziest competitive weight class out there. Right they now. really are. They're stacked. They're very close. Yeah, and as a two forty two, like I'll go to I'll go to other people's meets and I'll see some of these numbers. I'm like, fuck, I have to get up to there at some point. Like, this is... <laughs> like I'm trying to trying to get to seventeen hundred for May, and like to me that's gonna be a, a huge number for me. But like in relative sport, that's still like, eh. <laughs> it's a huge number for you, which means it means a lot, you know. And so it should mean a lot for you. It should mean a lot for your coach. But, you know, like you said, that's the comparison is a thief of joy yeah. because there are people who walk into this sport with a 1700 total on their first try. And those are the ones who grow to like 2200, 2300, you know, they're, they're ahead. Um, but some people started the sport. I know somebody who started the sport had like a thousand pound total and now they total like 1500. You think, God, they're 50% stronger than they used to be. That's astronomical versus somebody else. And I don't want to give names because I don't want to like dismiss anyone's accomplishments but i know some people who came to this sport at like an 1800 total and they only totaled 2000 which is an incredible achievement but they only gained 200 pounds you know it's only like a 12 percent achievement versus 50 percent. so on a person by person basis the other person learned and developed so much more than the one person who totaled 2000 and sometimes that's the case in this sport you see someone who totals a certain number and you think they know what they're doing not necessarily but also you know how much have they improved from where they started yeah and i know like recoverability mobility and all that is 
part of the longevity of the sport, but what are some other things that you think are very important to like slowly chipping away and like growing in the sport? Our understanding of nutrition. When I came into the sport, it was still very much a time of eat, eat big, get big, lift big, you know, go to McDonald's after every training session, put on 50 pounds and you'll squat 700 pounds. And that was true. If you put on that kind of body weight, you'd get strong enough. You ate your way strong, but you were so unhealthy. And because your body was so toxic and polluted, they couldn't last very long in a sport and they were breaking down. So the attrition rate was exceptionally high because people felt like shit. So I think now in the sport, people treat themselves like athletes and actually have nutrition protocols. And now the goal isn't to be, for some it still is, for some it still is to be the biggest, baddest, strongest. And for others, it's to maximize a certain weight class, put as much muscles they can on. You know, we have a much more weight class warrior based sport now than we did 15, 20 years ago, because people understand that performance nutrition is different than just eating to get strong. Yeah. You know, performance nutrition is going to help your recovery, getting enough hours of sleep, getting steps in, moving every day, getting sunlight, all these things enhance performance. People look at it now from an athletic background. And back then they didn't even consider it a sport. It was just more of like a fringe thing where you just try to see how strong you can get and how big you can get. And yeah. so that was the competition. But now it's, it's much more regulated as a sport with better rules, better, you know, we still have our problems, but better regulations, better policies, better procedures, better health. Um, God, I can think back to what powerlifters looked like 18 years ago, health-wise. You'd think they were all going to die on the platform because their faces were perfect. You know, yeah. blood pressure, roof, bloody noses everywhere. We still have it here and there. But now it, it looks like a fitness competition. People have veins. People have sub-10% body fat. People look good. People are transitioning to bodybuilding. They look so good. Yeah. It's definitely improved in that aspect from the quality of life leading to the quality on the platform. Yeah. And I think that's a, with nutrition, the first thing I can think of in terms of like performance-based nutrition is um, I had Stan Efferding on an episode, like the vertical diet. And to me, that's something that I've actually seen great benefits from. Um, I guess maybe your opinion on that, or maybe some of um, other performance-based diets that you've seen or benefited from. So I remember back in the day, recovery drinks would come out and people would freak out because they were done as a three to one or four to one carbohydrate to protein solution. What that means is for every one gram of protein, they would have three to four grams of carbohydrates. And back then people were like, oh, carbs make you fat. <laughs> you know, we're talking 90s, 2000 carbs were like, a, I was like a phobia where like carbs can't have that. And now, you know, thanks to people like Stan who are expressing like how important that is. And, you know, insulin spiking insulin post-workout helps shuttle the nutrients into your muscles and helps them recover and so forth. We know that we know there's not necessarily an anabolic window that insulin can work at any hour of the day to recover, but we know our body's processes of restoring liver glycogen and restoring muscle glycogen. That's priority for doing things. Um, I think Stan has just a way that is simplified that people can understand of picking your foods based off their nutrient quality. So the red meat is very, very high in vitamins and minerals. The rice is easily digestible. Putting in fish sometimes we can make sure you're getting your omega fatty acids and, you know, sodium loading because sodium is responsible for the hydration and your hydrated muscle cells responsible for your performance. So he's not saying you have to only eat this way. He's saying it benefits you for these reasons. And here's why. But there's a lot of variance in here. Like you can have chicken or you can have fish instead, but it's, it's just stacking meals. And um, he took vertical integration for nutrition, almost in the same way that Charlie Francis took vertical integration for programming aspects. You're just stacking a tier system of food that gives you the most bang for your buck. So you're maximizing your nutrient intake with the food you're taking in and maximizing your digestion rate so it doesn't slow you down. The point of the rice is that it doesn't slow you down versus having other carb sources like 
certain breads that can slow you down because they're hard for your body or maybe you don't handle the gluten very well. So he's big on sourdough, which is fermented breads. Uh, I like it. People just assume that's all you can eat, you're gonna be fine, but he actually has a calorie count control in his book that you're supposed to manipulate and do the math for what your body weight is and whether you're trying to lose weight or gain weight, and then it does the macros for you. People lose sight of that and they think, oh, I just eat meat and rice. That's oversimplifying his simplification, but I think it's a great structure and a great format. I think there's a lot of great books on there. Um, I have Dr. David Sandler book, The NSCA Fundamentals of Nutrition. It's their actual textbook. I think people should get that because it goes over uh, all the research, all the modern research on supplementation, such as intra-workout carbohydrates, whether they're beneficial or not, how long you need to be working out, what levels of electrolytes you need based off your body weight, performance, time. So it goes into greater, more specific detail for what you might need. And that's really, really beneficial for an athlete. But I think you can start your basis very simply at something like the vertical diet and say, okay, this is my, this is my simplest form. This is my tier. And then I'll start finding things I like on top of that or around it, but start with a structure because what gets managed gets measured. I'm sorry. What gets measured gets managed. I did that in reverse. So having a system in place for your nutrition definitely does help. Is his the only one? No, there are many. Yeah. Um, Christian Thibodeau has a lot of articles out on performance nutrition with carb cycling. Justin Harris has a ton of information out on carb cycling, how to make it work for you, calorie control. Lane Norton has great things together. Um, uh, Greg Knuckles has his, his uh, what is it, Macro Plus, I think is his app that you can use to create your nutrition protocol. There's a lot of ways out there to do it. Yeah, so I mean, like with social media, there's so many good resources. And I mean, sometimes there's too many resources, but so it's good that you gave a, a few examples. Um, I guess a few examples of maybe some social media resources for um, mobility as well. What, what do you recommend? Maybe some guys that you would recommend to someone. I like following strength conditioning professionals and I like following uh, people who work in the physical therapy space because they're dealing with athletes who are going through these movements and these problems and you can identify issues and you start to look at movement qualities that they want people to have that are safe and formative. And so you can use that as a base. So um, the barbell physio is a great, a great resource. Um, uh, people will hate on squat you. Uh, there are times I don't always agree with him, but I still think it's a great resource to listen and learn from. Even if you don't agree with his strategies, he does a great job of explaining the anatomy and why he feels the way he is. And he does list studies, even if you don't agree with the studies, but going in there with that, I don't like him or I don't like his, his ideas all the time limits what you can learn because he is doing a job of teaching. He's teaching anatomy. He's teaching structure. He's teaching testing. So you can be like, okay, I failed this test. Clearly I need to work on these muscle groups. And that's important too. So the barbell physio is great. Um, there's one who's a PRI guy. I don't always agree with his strategies, but Connor Harris is great at teaching the anatomy and movement. And you just have to understand that that doesn't apply to everyone, that breathing strategies can be very, very helpful, but they're not the end all be all. Uh, he can be controversial, but Dr. Pat Davidson, his uh, great understanding of applying strength to the movement patterns. You know, he has, he has his program, Rethinking the Big Three, which I think is great. Um, uh, there's a lot of good resources. I like Kyle Krupa, who's in Miami is a great physical therapist who works with a lot of the Dolphins and Miami Heat players and puts up a lot of great, you know, how to how to load certain movement patterns and bring people back. Tony Rogers is a good friend of mine, Rogers Reset. And he has a great understanding of human movement and displacement and balance. So he'll, he'll his eye is incredible to see when someone has problems with displacement or they're putting more weight on one side or the other and be like, here, here's your imbalance, here's what I want to work on, um, things like that. So I, I like to find people who focus a lot on movement quality, structure and structural integrity and, um, efficiency and then i never diagnose anyone or treat anyone i'll say to people hey you're showing this let's try this for a week or two if it's not improving let me refer you refer you to somebody else who's a clinician because i want you to get the help you need 
Um, but I, I think there's a fine line that some people try to fix without having the education, the qualification. So I make a, I make an effort not to fix anything or diagnose anything. I'm just saying, okay, here's what you're showing. Let's test. If this helps, cool. If it doesn't help, we're going to go up to a, somebody who's qualified. Yeah, I think that's a great approach to it. I think being able to kind of admit where you, your scope, you're out of scope is huge for a coach and for an athlete to be able yes. to get to that next step to that next level. Um, and if they're not following people like Dr. Seth Albersworth, Dr. Seth is a friend of mine. He used to live here in Florida and train at Perfect Storm. He moved back up to Canada. Um, he's a chiropractor, but he has video after video, two to three a day on exercise technique, mobility, correction, thought, you know, critical thinking as far as a power up there. His, his whole goal is just to put out as much free and available content as possible to help as many people as possible. And he remote coaches athletes and remote and does clinical work remote for athletes when they hurt themselves. He's helping Jordan come back from his pec tear from the American Pro all nine. So if someone, Dr. Locke, you know, if they're working with the highest level of athletes, there's usually some evidence that what they think is working. Same with, with squat you, you know, people may want to knock him, but obviously the highest level athletes are reaching out there for his help and he's helping them. So he's not always wrong, if, even if you don't agree. Yeah. Well, I think uh, we can kind of wrap things up here. I'll ask my, my final question. If you could, uh, give a an athlete or someone going into their first powerlifting meet a word of advice what would that be learn the rules um having reffed a lot of meets having given a lot of rules meeting athletes don't know the rules and if you don't know the rules it ruins your day for the wrong reasons what i mean is we had a guy take a state record on the weekend and when i gear checked him he had briefs on which are against the rules and i had to take his state record away and he had to go typically take off his underwear to come back and squat again he got it thankfully but i uh, you know by enforcing the rules i would have ruined his day and i did enforce the rules so, you know, that was gone over a gear check. <laughs> he was told that was gone over in the athlete's rules meeting in the morning. And when I saw it, I had to discredit his lift, you know, I had to red light it. Uh, that's, that's the job as a judge. So the first thing I can tell you is, you know, learn the rules because you'll have a much more fun day. Simple things you don't want to get, you know, uh, I always hate when someone's doing their first meet and they, they make a lift and it's a PR and they lose it because they beat the rack command or they took a step after the walk because they don't know the rules. That sucks. So your coach, if you're getting ready for your first meet, should explain to you the rules. You should take the time to look at the Federation rule book. You don't have to memorize them, but at least know what the commands are, know what you're allowed to do, know what you're not allowed to do, because it's going to make the day so much easier and less worrisome for you. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I mean, the first one that comes to mind is people jumping the rack command, because it's something that, like, when they hit a PR in the gym, they just throw it back into the rack. So that, that's what, it's good that you mentioned that. And something that I do, too, is if I'm competing at a new Federation, I like to skim the rule book as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Know what you're expecting. I mean... We've had, we've had, I've been to meets like IPA and uh, a, uh, APF where there's no start command on bench press. Yeah. And people are sitting there holding the weight for like 20 seconds and yep. they're like, <clears throat> and the judge is like, there's no start command. You could have gone 20 seconds ago and they didn't know the rules. So it made their day bad. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw that when I competed last September at an IPA meet. So that's funny. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Know the rules. Yeah. Well, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to come on. I had a great Absolutely. conversation. And, um, Hopefully I'll see you down in Florida. I'm looking forward to seeing everybody compete there. I hope so. It'll be fun. Awesome.